Hello, welcome back to the Animal Friendly Podcast. Today we're going to talk about one of the easiest ways to be animal friendly, and that is not to give any money to companies or organizations that hurt animals or cause animal suffering. Sounds obvious, right? And maybe you're thinking, well, I certainly don't give my money to any of those companies, whoever they are. They sound horrible. I don't pay anyone to hurt animals. Well, the trouble is, you might be doing exactly that without realizing it. We live in a world where many different brands or products can all be owned by one company, which could then be owned by another company. The single product or brand might appear to be very ethical and animal friendly, but the larger company which owns it might not be nice to animals at all. But how are you supposed to know? Well, this is where ethical consumer comes in. I had a very interesting and illuminating chat with Jazz Owens, a researcher at the organization. You're very welcome, Jazz. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting us to come and speak with you. So I guess the first thing to do is tell us what is Ethical Consumer? Okay, so Ethical Consumer is a research organization that's been going since about 1989. And our primary objective is to make global business more sustainable through using the method of consumer pressure and consumer awareness. Um, yeah, so the, the main thing that we do, our core product is rating companies using a set of criteria that we apply to the companies, which examines their approaches to key issues when it comes to animal rights and welfare, workers' rights, human rights, the environment, and also political activities. And we conduct this research and then we turn it all into useful information that consumers can use to make ethical decisions. So what are some of the things that you would mark down a company for? So we would mark companies down for, shall we go straight into the animal kind of aspect? Yes, this is an animal podcast. So let's start with animal rights and yeah, okay. tell us about that. So when it comes to the animal section of our work, uh, we have three specific ratings that we will rate companies on if they operate in the sectors where it's relevant. So like uh, if it was a, a company that's unlikely to have anything to do with animals, uh, I'm trying to think of, of an example, I don't know, a, a water like if it sells bottled water, right. chances are they've not got much to do with animals. So we probably wouldn't rate them on the animal categories but if it's one that does such as you know a supermarket or the or cosmetics company or that type yeah. of thing we would rate them on three different ratings these are animal rights factory farming which is more like animal animal welfare kind of comes under that factory farming column and the third one is animal testing so we look for those three things whenever it's relevant so basically um I can give you a little intro into what's covered under each one, if you like. Um, Absolutely, yes. Okay, so the animal rights category looks at essentially whether a company is using any animal products at all. If it's if it's got anywhere in its product line, anywhere in its company family tree, if it's got any animal produce, so that that's kind of looking at whether it's vegan or not. At the minute, it's not hundred percent. Like sometimes a company might somewhere in its in its operations, a really small subsidiary somewhere might sell a small amount of animal products. And at the minute, we're deciding whether or not we should mark down for such a small amount. But it's more or less a column which says, is it vegan? Is it not vegan? And if it isn't, it gets marked down. 
And then the animal welfare column, which is called factory farming, that's kind of saying if a company does use animal products, is it or animal derived ingredients or materials, um, are they treating the animals with the relevant welfare standards? So there we look for like um, live plucking policies, if it's for down or mules and if it's merino wool. And we have different things we look for for every type of animal derived ingredient or material. And then the final one is animal testing. And that column looks at how strong a company's animal testing policy is. So basically, if it operates in the sectors of uh, cosmetics or household goods in particular, like household cleaning products, then we would be expecting a really strong, stringent animal testing policy. Because so many companies say, you know, we don't test this product on animals. But that's actually a pretty meaningless statement uh, because very, very few companies actually do test on animals themselves. So we, ha we have a policy which really checks how stringent that is. So would they, what do you mean? They don't do it themselves. They have another, there is another company that does the testing and then they get the product? Yeah, it's a, it's a really <laughs> in-depth world. <laughs> the world of corporate animal, animal testing and policies in particular. So basically, if a popular brand or a, a well-known name had tested its product on animals, an outrage would probably occur. Like people really don't like that. Yeah. Uh, consumers don't like that. So companies rarely would ever actually do it because of the bad publicity. And also because it's very, very expensive to test on animals. So they probably wouldn't want to go there. So instead, what happens is they may commission someone else to test on animals for them. Or what seems to be most common is that it's actually animal testing occurring within the supply chain so basically you might have a product which contains lots of different ingredients mm -hmm. and then so a brand's made this product and then the ingredient whoever they bought it from they were tested on animals and that's where the majority of testing on animals actually takes place so what you want to be looking for in a strong animal testing policy is you know we never buy ingredients from suppliers who test on animals. And that's that's what matters. And that's what distinguishes a good animal testing policy from a bad animal testing policy. That's one of the things, but there's a lot of different <laughs> different elements there to look out for. That's one thing I really like about you guys is that you do all this hard work so that the rest of us don't have to do it. How much... Um, do you like when I started reading it, my head was just spinning with all the different ways that companies could jump through loopholes and get things done. Like, did your head ever spin with the, the sheer amount of uh, data that you have to look at? Yes. And it's increasing. <laughs> the amount of data out there is increasing so much. So I've only been an ethical consumer for two and a half years, I think, roughly. And even in that amount of time, I've seen the amount of reporting that companies are doing on their sustainability approaches increase. Um, I know that back when Ethical Consumer started in 1989, companies were saying hardly anything about sustainability or the environment. And now it can take hours to read through everything that they've published about it and trawl through and try and find find out what's meaningful in there. So yeah, your head can definitely spin with the amount of stuff that is out there. So that's 
that's kind of why we have very specific things to look for, specific key indicators, because it helps us narrow down what we're looking for. Yeah. Your website is it has a ratings guide, but it's also full of articles kind of explaining what is vegan washing, what's green washing. Um, I suppose vegan washing is an interesting one. Can you kind of explain a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics <laughs> to write about. Um, oh, yeah, we, we find that people like reading about different types of washing as well, different types of corporate washing. Yeah, vegan washing, we'd probably define it as a company claiming to be more friendly towards animals, um, other animals, than it, it actually is in reality. And in fact, it might actually be doing active harm towards animals as well. So an example I could give you, uh, Shine, the clothing company. Actually, I think you say it's Shane. I'm not sure. Oh, yes. Um, she, I always say Shein for some Shein. reason. Shein. Okay. Yeah, I've heard we'll every version that. of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Shein is a really popular fast fashion clothing brand. Um, and when we did our guide to high street clothing shops, I think it was last year, we found that it had a statement on its website that said something like, we are an animal-free company and then we looked on its website and it was using so many animal derived uh, materials in its clothing so you know a consumer might go on the website think should I buy from these I don't want to contribute to animal exploitation and then they read that statement which says we're animal free and buy from there thinking yeah. it must all be faux faux ingredients and actually no it's the opposite so yeah vegan washing that's that's how I'd describe it I should mention that while Sheehan gets a very low score of three in the score table, there are many other high street brands that are down there with them. TK Maxx, Wallace, Pretty Little Thing, Karen Millen, Debenhams, Boohoo, Primark and others. None of them score higher than three for reasons such as bad animal testing policies or real fur found in faux fur clothes. They also score badly in the people and environment sections. Companies at the top of the table include Patagonia, Reformation and Nobody's Child. Let's move from fashion to food. One score table worth mentioning is the vegan cheese chart. Here there are high scoring brands like New Roots, La Fomagerie, Cheesley and Mouse's Favourite, as well as low scoring like Follow Your Heart, Pure and Violife. Pure vegan cheese is marked down because it's owned by Kerry Group and dairy is a core part of their business. They also have a pharma and biotechnology range which involves animal testing. This kind of detail is important because many vegans wouldn't be happy knowing their money is ultimately going to support the dairy industry. They would prefer to buy from a company with a solid vegan ethos. Jazz and I discussed some of these brands and I asked about the concept of an economic vote versus a political vote and how we can use our everyday spending to influence society. So we, we always think that ethical consumption should be a something extra that people can use to influence politics and the society we live in. We don't think it's a substitute for political action, um, but we think it's a useful tool you can help. And in that way, you know, it doesn't replace an actual vote, um, but it can be an additional way to kind of fund and show active support 
and help the success of something that aligns with your political values to try and make that more popular and even become the mainstream so yeah when you buy something it's like um it's like making a vote because you're you're opting to support the kind of practices that you politically agree with and when it comes to the example that you said there with pure uh, vegan brand I think um being owned by a big a massive dairy company that's kind of like saying we we kind of condone the actions of the parent company if we give money to pure then we're funding a dairy company and enabling it to continue and to grow and for dairy to continue to be a really popular industry and yeah we kind of see showing these links between the brand and the ultimate parent company so when you when you spend money on a particular branded product where does your money ultimately end up which bottom line is it adding to ultimately that's going to be the parent company that owns the brand so we kind of see making those links visible because they're often not visible uh, a way of democratizing the market because people can understand more clearly where their money is actually going so it's about increasing transparency about what your money is actually being used to support that was how I found you guys in the first place I wanted I wanted to find out who owned a certain thing and I was like oh I spent about half an hour tracking it and then I came across ethical consumer and it was like a big light shining on me and it said here you go you can find them all right here so oh, one of your <laughs> it must be difficult because companies keep swapping and changing and they're bought by other companies and you just keep following up and having to keep updating. Yeah, exactly. Which is it's always such a nightmare when a company gets bought by a different one because we're like, oh, that's gonna take someone all day to figure out how that affects its score. Um, but yeah, yeah. So every time if it's a major company. Uh, one that everyone well one that lots of people know and use we try and update them right away so that we can let people know this takeover's happened and what does it mean um, but usually we only update companies and check if their ownership has changed when we're writing a product guide for a specific product and then we find out well all these things have changed since we last looked at this industry like whenever it was so yeah, ownership changes so quickly um, a lot of the time. So we try and keep up with it. Um, I was just looking and you've just brought out your 199th edition. So it's going to be the 200th edition next year. Do you think, I suppose you've only been there a couple of years, but Ethical Consumer has probably seen enormous changes in the last 30 years of interest in, in ha have people become more ethical or is it just more publicity? Yeah, we've found that the ethical consumer market is is really increasing. So the amount of people that are choosing to spend their money in ways that uh, match their ethics is has really increased. And we produce a report each year called the Ethical Consumer Markets Report, which assesses the size of each different ethical market in the UK. So like ethical fashion, how many people are spending on ethical fashion in the UK and like what is that industry worth now and like ethical food so like vegan organic that kind of thing how many people are like what's the size of that market so every year we look at that and we're finding it's increasing rapidly year on year so it is growing as a movement definitely this is a good time to mention that if you are an animal friendly shopper or you want to be 
There are logos to look out for, such as Ethical Consumers' own Best Buy logo, a little blue butterfly. There's the Leaping Bunny from Cruelty Free International and the Vegan Society logo. Ethical Consumer have an article with 10 steps on how to shop more ethically, and that's well worth a read. But sometimes the easiest thing is just to check their database, which has information on over 40,000 brands and products, covering a really wide range of topics. Clothing and food I've already mentioned, but there's also health and beauty, energy, technology, travel, money, and home and garden. To get full access, you'll need a subscription. And this is currently £29.95 a year. That works out about 60 cents a week, so it's incredible value for money. Ethical Consumer also run campaigns to highlight particular issues or injustices. So yeah, we have a, an Amazon campaign, which is quite active. Um, you can read more about that on the website, but it's essentially around um, Amazon's prolific tax avoidance and relative immunity when it comes to actually paying up a fair amount of tax. Um, we have a campaign around that, a boycott campaign. One campaign that I'll speak about because I'm biased because I like working on this, <laughs> on this campaign. I'm, I'm part of our, our Spain campaign team, which is essentially a campaign that kind of began in 2019 when we started publishing about the issue. And now it's kind of picking up speed year on year. And what that is about is fruit and vegetables, which are picked in southern Spain, in the regions of Almeria and Huelva, specifically in southern Spain. And they're picked predominantly by migrant workers who travel to work in the agricultural sector there. And the produce that they pick, which is everything from tomatoes to berries to peppers, that kind of thing, uh, these end up on the shelves of European supermarkets and supermarkets in the UK. And the conditions of the working conditions in this region are just outrageous and horrendous and, and hard to believe they exist in Europe. But they do. And this is tens of thousands of workers. And, and when we go to a supermarket, when we go to like we've we've linked uh, produce from that region to almost every UK supermarket, you know, we're funding really exploitative working conditions in their supply chain. We're literally giving money to that company, which is is seriously exploiting workers um, and often acting completely illegally as well. So, yeah, this is kind of a we're campaigning. We're working closely with you with a union, well, multiple unions in the region. And we're we're developing a, a, a big report on outlining the situation. And we've been working closely with the Spanish press. Um, basically to try and get coverage about this really important issue which UK consumers need to be aware of and have the power to do something about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the people who have the power to do something about it if they, if they knew. This is one thing I like about my subscription to Ethical Consumer is I'm not just paying for a service. I always feel I get a great service because I can look up products and stuff, but also I feel I'm putting my money into a really good I'm, you know, supporting great work. So that makes me feel good to hear about campaigns like that. Um, That's really nice to hear. Oh, I'll <laughs> add one thing to that as sure, well. Yeah. Because I think this is like one of my favourite things about ethical consumer, actually, is like we are a non-profit and we're a cooperative and we're completely, we, we try and we're a completely flat structured cooperative as well. 
So all of our staff, whether you've been here 30 years or whether you joined six months ago and you're still in your probation period, we all get the same rate of pay. We all have the same ability to um, block decisions that we don't agree with or come up with suggestions that need to be fully considered. So, yeah, it's like I feel like the kind of workplace that people are supporting is is an ethical one as well. (laughs) I mean, you'd really hate to kind of go on your website and look up ethical consumer and then find out they're a really bad company. That would be ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it would be. I kind of, I hope and assume that you have a wonderful work, uh, just just (laughs) as you described. Yeah, yeah, that they look after you you guys. Um, I wanted to talk about the Lush Prize as well. Yeah. um... Quick interruption here. Sorry, Jazz. Just to say, in case you don't know, that Lush are an amazing cosmetics company with really strong ethics. Not to mention a fabulous range of shower products, hair care, bath bombs, fragrances, and so on. Interestingly, they themselves point out that all business should be ethical and all trade should be fair. And these are not qualities that should make a company distinctive, but should simply be standard. Their real ethical strength is in animal rights. They fought against animal testing from their inception And to this end, they launched the Lush Prize in partnership with Ethical Consumer in 2012. Back to you, Jazz. So the Lush Prize is an awards which celebrate different organisations and companies and researchers who are creating innovative new solutions that could help bring about an ultimate end to animal testing. So it celebrates everything from like you know, the latest scientific developments for non-human animal testing methods to like activists who broke a load of animals out of labs um, and how they did it. And and yeah, we're we're also the auditors for Lush's animal testing in its supply chain. So Ethical Consumer carries out audits of Lush's uh, suppliers for animal testing. Um, so you check, so, so they have all their suppliers and you're just keeping an eye the whole time to make sure nothing is sneaking into their supply chain that they don't know about. Yeah, so they have ingredient suppliers in countries like Japan and uh, Croatia and a few different countries and we conduct yeah audits with them, um, which I won't go into much detail okay. about, but yeah, we kind of do the do the kind of legwork of checking that its suppliers fully understand the policy and are doing everything everything they can to ensure that it's being followed and if there's any instances where it's unclear if that's happening we get all the information to kind of make sure you know what Lush is saying is is true so we can provide some level of assurance to people who want to buy from Lush and know that their, their policies are really stringent. Ethical Consumer compile their score tables based on five different categories. As mentioned, animals is one, and there's also environment, people, politics, and sustainability. Environment includes things like the use of palm oil or a company's climate change policies. The people category includes areas such as human rights, workers' rights, or irresponsible marketing. As Lush say, A company shouldn't stand out just because they don't cause damage. But if you want to educate yourself on exactly how companies can cause damage to people, animals and even society, then a read through some of the criteria in the ethical consumers rating system is eye-opening, to say the least. 
I asked Jazz how the researchers managed to cover it all. All the researchers, we've all got kind of different interests, so I, I love talking about the animal-related stuff, which is why <laughs> I was excited to come on your podcast and just talk about animals for, for a bit. And, and, you know, I'm vegan as well. So that's kind of my interest, and I like working on this part of our, our research. But other researchers aren't vegan, and they might be much more interested in, in different issues like, you know, tax avoidance. Um, and that's the same with the readers as well. Some readers are not at all interested in the animal-related columns, but they're completely interested in, you know, is the cotton being sourced ethically in our clothing? Um, so, yeah, so the ratings kind of allow people to think which which columns, which categories, which areas of ethical behaviour are important to me. And then they can discard all the ones that aren't. <laughs> so, yeah, in that way, it is, it is a case of what matters most to you, what's manageable for you, uh, what's affordable for you, um, all these all these questions. You, so you don't have to tick every box. None of us tick every box when it comes <laughs> to spending ethically either. So, yeah, we try and make it possible for people to pick what matters and, and work on that. Ethical Consumer has been around for 33 years now. And I was curious as to how important their subscriber base is to them and what role their readers and followers play in the evolution of the organisation. Yeah, no, yeah. we're lucky enough, like, lucky enough to have had subscribers who were there long before I was, I think, trying to work out, actually before I was born. <laughs> so some, <laughs> well some subscribers have been subscribing since 1989. Since, since the beginning um and and they've stuck with ethical consumer so yeah we're, we're lucky to have a really committed subscriber base that you know provide provide feedback and and help the organization to continue to be kind of activist oriented and action oriented and like if if there's something happening they're the ones that like companies now like we can publish about it but it's yeah, consumers and readers, I think, who who have the actual impact, you know, when you've got a lot, when you've got thousands of people becoming aware and talking about an issue, that's when I think that's where the, the impact happens. <laughs> yeah. Because you guys often ask, is there a company you'd like us to look at or is there, is and, and so that's great that people can be involved and say, actually, yeah, can you look into this? So yeah, we get so many interesting suggestions when we ask that, mm. yeah. Like there's, we'll, we'll get like responses to that question, like which company do you want us to research? And we'll get answers, which are like, maybe, maybe 10 companies will appear again and again. And we're like, why are there for people suggesting this company? They don't look like anything interesting or special. And then we start to look into them and we're like, this is why readers want us to look at this company. Yeah. yeah. So readers are always alerting us to things that we should be looking at and researching. Um, That's really so yeah, it's, cool. a, it's a two-way relationship. I'd already learned a lot from our conversation, but I've also learned to ask, is there anything we might have missed? And Jazz came up with a perfect ending. Oh, there's one thing I'd like to... Um, this is just something, it's nice when there's a victory. So I feel like sharing this animal right Okay. Victory. We, last summer, we came across a story online about um hunting and you know the company axa um well an organization called hunting leaks had found some evidence that axa was insuring 
the hunts across the UK. It was providing insurance services to the hunting officers in the UK, which is, you know, mega. And a lot of AXA, AXA's customers were not happy to find out about the fact that they, the company that they in, got their insurance with was also funding hunts and hunting leaks and the hunt saboteurs they started trying to campaign to kind of raise awareness about this and get AXA to stop working with um, the hunting office. And, yeah, we worked with Hunt Saboteurs on an article about this for our boycotts page in the magazine. and wrote an article on the website as well about, you know, let's boycott, let's boycott AXA basically until it stops ensuring the hunts. And we found out earlier this year, I think in January or February, that basically AXA used to tweet in a certain way to responses like customers would tweet at AXA saying you need to stop insuring the hunt I can't believe you're doing this xyz and then this earlier this year I think in January or February AXA started saying oh we don't provide insurance to the hunts and it had never done that before so it looks like it's ended all relationship with the hunts and yeah, that's the kind of thing that shows how consumers can really get companies to stop being involved in unethical activity. Well, that's it. I discovered Ethical Consumer a few years ago, and I really appreciate the knowledge they provide to help me make more informed choices. I hope you might think twice as well about where your money goes when it leaves your purse or your pocket. So thank you again. <laughs> Oh, well, um, thank you so much for the compliment of asking yeah. us. It's been really yeah. nice just talking about all this animal stuff. Great. <laughs> and I'll stay tuned for your future episodes. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as we did. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time.